Hello, it's 19th of January and this is episode 130 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star's news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the series. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Pretty good, because I have read issue number two of the Rise of Kylo Ren comic book by Charles Soule, and it's really, really good. It's such a great comic book, and I never normally read comics. So, yeah, that was a big statement coming from me, basically, (laughs) because I'm quite impressed. I think my only qualm is that it's a story that's so interesting and so compelling, it just makes me want to see it in a more substantial format. Because obviously comics, they're so brief. You know, I read a comic in five, ten minutes, and then it's done. And it's like, oh, I'd I'd love this to be an animated series or a novel or just anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think eventually we'll get novels, because they've got a huge 30-year gap to fill there now. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to those stories. Yeah, might take a little while. We'll have to be patient. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm not very good at that. How about you, Kirsty? My week in Star Wars has been pretty quiet, to be honest, which I guess is kind of nice. <laughs> I tried to go back and watch a little of The Mandalorian in preparation for this episode. I managed to get through two episodes, but that was it. So <laughs> we'll see how fresh I am with remembering all the details. Um, yeah. Apart from that, we got some lovely feedback for our Rose Tico episode that we did last week. So thank you to everyone who enjoyed and responded to that. We had a lot of fun recording it. Yeah, no thanks everyone. It's been so nice to see those comments. And yeah, it felt worthwhile even as we were recording it. But reading people's responses makes me feel extra glad that we did that. So yeah, Mm -hmm. thanks everyone. Just up the top so everyone knows, I'm away on holiday in Iceland next week. So there won't be an episode, but we'll be back shortly after that. So yeah, there will be like a one week skip and then we will return. So yeah. Cool. So this week we actually have a little news item to discuss first. Um, Would you like to, to reveal what we're going to be talking about quickly, Kirsty? Yeah, uh, I'm sure lots of people have heard the news already, but the Hollywood Reporter um put out an article this week that said Taika Waititi is revealed to be in talks to direct an upcoming Star Wars movie. The filmmaker behind the Oscar-nominated Jojo Rabbit and Thor Ragnarok has been approached to develop a Star Wars movie, sources tell The Hollywood Reporter. It is unclear where things stand in those talks. It is also unclear whether the project is separate from the one being developed by Kevin Feige, with whom he closely worked on Ragnarok, or a separate Star Wars project. Disney and Lucasfilm, producers of the Star Wars movies, had no comment. (laughs) So basically, they know nothing. <laughs> yeah, like the only substantial thing about this report is that Taika Waititi's in talks. There's nothing to it beyond that. So that obviously means we're limited in what we can say. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's obviously a great director. Um, I really love his movies for the most part. I didn't like Shoujo Rabbit as much as a lot of people do, to be honest. Um, but that was always going to be a tricky movie, you know, so obviously it's about nazi germany and balancing the tone when you're dealing with that subject matter it's always going to be quite personal as to whether it works for you um but yeah, i love his other movies i really love hunt for the wilder people that's probably my favorite movie of his and yeah he's just a really talented unique creative voice so if he does actually make this movie i'd be very excited but yeah we will see yeah um i think what we do in the shadows is my favorite of his and i, I did enjoy thor ragnarok as well um, I think the Thor movies are probably my favourite of all the, the Marvel bunch. But mm. um, yeah, I, to be honest, I would be surprised if Taika Waititi wasn't being talked to about doing a Star Wars movie. 
because yeah. he's been involved in the Mandalorian. His episode was received very well. Um, he's obviously doing more Marvel, and yeah, they seem to like him. So <laughs> yeah, no, it would seem a bit silly to not consider that as an eventuality. Yeah. Because yeah, if the last few years of Star Wars have taught people anything, it should teach people that good directors are hard to find and creative differences are perpetually looming on the horizon. So, hmm. yeah, I'm not going to get too attached to this because there's obviously been lots of projects that haven't come through, you know, and there's been directors who've parted ways of Lucasfilm and stuff. So I won't pin all my hopes on this happening. But if it does happen, I'm excited and I would look forward to finding out what he's actually going to be making a movie about. Yeah, good directors seem to be hard to find for Lucasfilm for some reason. I And it should be noted, of course, that Taika Waititi will be the first non-white person to direct a Star Wars movie. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of reacting to this like, oh, another male director. Like, we would really like to see some women or some women of colour. And I, I agree with those people. But I can see why they would be talking to Taika. Like you say, it could be easily something that just doesn't work out. They're just in talks. It's very early stages and we have no idea of what the story would be or anything. So um, I'm going to guess that this is separate from what they said they were going to announce this month in terms of a director for the upcoming, is it the 2022 movie? Yeah, that's But who right. knows if that is even going to be announced now in kind of the wake of the Rise of Skywalker reactions. They might have some reorganizing and rethinking to do. Yeah. No, absolutely. I feel like they need to be very, very careful about what they announce because the last thing they want is to announce something that then doesn't come through and doesn't happen. You know, so that's already happened so much. Yeah. And it just gets increasingly embarrassing each time it happens. So they they need to be rock solid certain that whatever they announce, whichever director they announce next, will actually make their movie. Right. <laughs> because, yeah, otherwise it's just not a good look. Yeah, like you say, we just we've learned not to get too attached to any of these announcements because it could just as easily just not pan out. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch Lucasfilm this year. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting year. Okay, cool. So obviously it's been a while since The Mandalorian wrapped up, but because it wrapped up amidst the release of The Rise of Skywalker, it obviously wasn't the primary thought on our minds to do an episode on The Mandalorian. That in and of itself was a bit of a strange choice, in my opinion, scheduling that. It's a bit weird. I guess maybe they thought that it would help, they'd help each other as like a cross-promotional thing, but I'm mm. not sure it worked that way. <laughs> Corporate synergy. <laughs> Ugh, I hate that word so much. I mean, there's a little bit of crossover because you've got the whole four ceiling Baby Yoda thing. Oh yeah, oh god, re- re-watching these episodes, it kind of hurt quite badly, watching the four ceiling Yeah, scenes. it's got a different connotation now. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, ooh, this hurts. (laughs) I actually took a while to watch these episodes. I think just because I needed to sort of like decompress from Star Wars after The Rise of Skywalker. And it was Christmas and I was home with my family, you know, so that was also part of it. But yeah, it was nice to actually come back to them in the new year and watch them for the first time and be like, oh, how pure, how nice. (laughs) You know, because I really do enjoy The Mandalorian. And to me, it's like a nice form of Star Wars where because I don't have that high level of investment I have in the sequel trilogy characters and stuff, I can just relax much more and enjoy it for what it is. Mm. And that's a nice experience to have, you know, especially after the 
sheer stress that is the rise of skywalker (laughs) yeah it surprised me how much i ended up enjoying this show there's not much particularly groundbreaking about it but it takes that well-worn story of the wandering lone wolf who learns to care for like a vulnerable person and brings that into the star wars galaxy with a lot of warmth and humor yeah it's a lot of fun and i agree with you that it's low stakes comparatively uh i think for like I'm going to assume for general audiences The Rise of Skywalker is also relatively low stakes because even though they know it's the end of the Skywalker saga at the end of the day they're just buying another ticket for another movie Yes, <laughs> for us we're like oh can't handle it <laughs> <laughs> too much yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah we're talking about our very personal experience of it basically yeah so I, I think you're right it's nice to go back and just kind of enjoy something set in the Star Wars galaxy um, but it's like obviously a much smaller story, even if towards the end it does kind of seem to have larger connections to other stuff that's going on in the galaxy, kind of hinting for the next season. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's start out just by talking in a little bit more depth about episodes seven and eight. Um, these two are essentially a two-parter and they close out the first season. Um, and yeah like really good episodes i'm not sure they were my favorite episodes in the season although i thought they were both really strong there was lots of action across these two episodes and i really enjoyed it It was very well staged action but i'm not much of an action person you know so i was slightly checked out during some of the extended like pew 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 blast 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 scenes um but yeah like i don't mean to like not credit what was achieved because it was very well staged action and it was tense and it was well done it's just not necessarily for me um so yeah how did you feel about these two episodes overall Kirsty? i really enjoyed them like you i'm not a huge action scene person so it's not that i don't enjoy them it's just i would find it hard to break them down and analyze them yeah um but i think that they served everything really well i didn't feel like anything was redundant Um, oh yeah it all needed to be there yeah and i i just thought it brought everything full circle really well so obviously as we were going along week by week we weren't sure when it would kind of return to this main plot points of having to go back and kind of face what's the name of this planet again oh god the planet i don't know (laughs) sorry (laughs) sorry um yeah for the longest time i thought it was tatooine but it's not (laughs) Yeah, I remember finding out in one previous episode, but purely from Wikipedia. I'm not sure it's even mentioned. Okay. Um, but yeah, to return to Quill and yeah, the Werner Herzog character and get this new villain and yeah, kind of just facing the music of what the Mandalorian did, right? So that last episode is called Redemption and it's kind of up for debate who that's about or if it's more than one character. Mm. Um, but yeah I I really enjoyed them I thought it was done really well and it kind of had a a well rounded cap on the season while also giving you tantalising things to theorise on for for the next season so yeah no there's definitely some very nice clear setups for what's to come because um, in episode 8 you obviously have the armourer literally explain to the Mandalorian what he needs to do essentially (laughs) which is reunite the child with his own species um i do love that at one point like the mandalorian was sort of questioning if the baby could become a mandalorian (laughs) and the other was just like no it's too weak it would die she doesn't say in a condescending way but i feel like come on like look at it please (laughs) 
I was wondering if she means reunite him with other Yodas or with like the Jedi, if there are any mm. Jedi out there. How interesting. I definitely took from it other Yodas, but I guess it's possible. I don't know. I'm just like picturing them turning up on a planet full of Yodas. <laughs> quite funny. I sort of picture it being quite primitive looking, you know, sort of like Wookiee Village vibes. Mm. I'd quite yes, like I'm wondering that. at this point if Luke's already kind of set up his Jedi Temple or if he only did that once Ben was old enough to start training. That's a really good question. I don't think we have an answer to that yet. I'd assume that it was a bit later when Ben was slightly older. Yeah, I think there's a line in The Last Jedi that he says, like, when I, Leia asked me to train him, Han was Han about it, and I took him and a dozen other students. But Yes. Could still, I mean... Not to sell too much, but the Rise of Skywalker proves that they can kind of change whatever they want to suit them. So, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. They'll do whatever they feel is best. I think for the story going forward. Yeah. So, who knows what Luke is out there doing at this point? Basically. So. Yeah. Oh my God, the prospect of like Luke appearing in the show—that's very tantalizing. I, I hadn't even crossed my mind because there is a line from the Armorer where she basically throws a lot of shade on the Jedi because they seem to be these enemies of the Mandalorians historically which I'm sure touches upon stuff that happens in the Clone Wars that I don't know about mm-hmm. um, but yeah she does seem to imply that she he should take the baby to his species rather than the Jedi I think because it seems like they have beef with the Jedi essentially but yeah I do like the idea of potentially in the next season that emerging as like a conflict you know perhaps the Mandalorian does come across like Luke or hear about what Luke's thinking about doing in terms of setting up the Jedi Order again and then he maybe can't find Yoda's species or feels for whatever reason that that's not the best place for the baby and so he's tempted to take the baby to Luke instead, you know, could be so interesting. There's lots of potentialities. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about our favourite moments in these two episodes, actually. So for me, I think the highlight of both episodes might be that little sequence where we see how Quill takes the old IG oh, droid I love that. and rehabilitates it. I think that's so well done. And it it just works great as a little short film in its own right. And yeah, it's just perfect Star Wars to me. Yeah, I was wondering from that first episode, I was like, I swear we see a lot more of this droid. Um, we'd, we'd seen more of him in the promo with Cara Dune and the Mandalorian. Um, so I was like, how is he going to come back into it? Because he kind of shot him and left him on the ground. But we've got this really lovely kind of montage of Quill finding him and restoring him and giving us kind of a voiceover and reprogramming him and then the unease of the Mandalorian kind of being like well he was designed to kill you might think that you restored him to this kind of a friendly helpful droid personality but the killer is underneath and of yeah. course that kind of come full, full circle and we, we talked a lot earlier on about the Mandalorian's mistrust of droids and how it kept coming up and it was like is there going to be a payoff for this um, and there is and it's really satisfying and moving um, yeah. And I thought IG's sacrifice, the whole the whole way that that was was told was really beautiful. Yeah, that was really effectively mounted, especially with that incredible imagery of the river of fire and invoking the underworld and stuff like that. It was really mm-hmm. cool. Um, and yeah, like it just worked really well in lots of ways. And it also feeds into like those key Star Wars concepts, doesn't it? Of redemption and sacrifice. Yeah. Um, is interesting really when you think about it because 
redemption for that droid it comes about through complete erasure of what the droid was before and the insertion of a completely new personality for the droid which i do feel is quite common in star wars because like it or not a lot of the time the morality is quite black and white and yeah i feel like it goes from being a completely bad droid to being a completely good droid and i think it's really well executed and well done i just think that's an interesting encapsulation and distillation of what Stoll's does with redemption more broadly yeah for better or for worse i guess yeah um again not to come too much back to the rise of skywalker but i think that was kind of some of our and other people's criticisms of how ben's redemption was executed it was very yes. much like a switch was turned off and it's like okay i'm good now yeah <laughs> throwing the exactly. lightsaber away <laughs> um, oh my god i guess that's the easy way to do it and it makes it clear for the audience including children i'm good now um yeah but i i think it could just as easily be kind of the mandalorian's own redemption because he has his prejudices and misgivings challenged yeah Exactly. And at the end, Grief Cargo gives the Mandalorian the option of like taking up bounty hunting contracts again and returning to that way of life. But he's like, no, I've got more important things to focus on, you know, mm. and obviously talking about the baby. And that in itself is a kind of redemption for him because he'd been leading this sort of like empty mechanical life, you know, just going out fulfilling these contracts, ruining people's lives. <laughs> presumably even if they were quite often bad people you know because i'm sure if you have a bounty on you it's probably there for a reason and yeah he's grown from that now and he doesn't want to do that anymore and he's changed and so yeah it's very much about him as well yeah it's interesting that we got this show at a similar time to the witcher on netflix because i both think they both have quite a similar premise it's obviously not like a fresh groundbreaking new story but i don't know it's kind of nice to have these stories about men learning to care for things yeah. What did you think about seeing the Mandalorian's face and learning his name and seeing that full backstory for him with the Mandalorians rescuing him? Did you like all that? Yeah, I'm really glad that we got the unmasking. Obviously a sucker for that in Star Wars and well, anything else, but I thought it was really well done and it kind of they kind of went the whole Eowyn like, I am no man, <laughs> you know. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm a droid, so I can see your face, no problem. So you yeah. could see it coming, but it was well done. Yes. Um, and it, it, it was a touching moment between those characters when he'd previously been so mistrusting. Going back to like the flashback, these flashbacks have been kind of confusing me because we've got quite a few of them and each time they add like a little bit more, but it's not stuff that's too surprising. It's kind of what you would expect to be the next stage of his, the, his parents hiding him and then him being rescued. Yeah. So I'm not really sure what it's supposed to be telling us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. I saw lots of speculation that it might be someone unexpected who rescued him. Like it might be Obi-Wan or something. You know, there might be a Hugh McGregor it's just a, It's just a Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah, it's just an anonymous Mandalorian, which is what we knew from the beginning. So yeah, I was a little bit let down by that as a reveal, I think, because I was prepared for a bit more of a revelation, basically, which we didn't get. Yeah, because you'd think if they're bothering to show us this over and over and leading up to it, it would be something that would subvert what he's told us or what he's led us to believe. But it's exactly what the story has been. So I'm a bit confused by those choices. I think for me, it just sort of underlined that this is a very simple story. Yeah, like it is what it says on the tin. You know, it's a very basic story of like foundlings and caring about coming to care for people, like regardless of blood ties and stuff and taking people in and stuff. And those are all nice messages. 
there's just not much in the way of like that complexity or depth like I think I might have hoped for a bit more and that's not to say there isn't like any depth at all in this series because there is depth in certain facets of it but yeah for the most part it's a very simple story that's true yeah I mean I'm enjoying it for what it is so yeah no exactly and like I said at the beginning it's nice to watch a sort of like a low stakes like ah this is nice sort of thing um and I'll definitely watch season two yeah there's lots of great characters. Like, I love Quill. I was really sad when he died. Yeah, no, he was probably my favourite out of all of them. So I was like, <laughs> no. Yeah, so, so charming and so good. Yeah. And I also love his way of speaking. It's sort of this um, quasi-Shakespearean almost, you know? Mm. It's very um, elaborate and eloquent. And yeah, he's just so well-spoken. And I'll miss him as a presence. He really had like a unique feel to him that I haven't really seen in any of the Star Wars character and yeah I'll miss him yeah I always want to see more Ignorts now to see if I kind of like him or if he's a bit of like a a lone standout because he he obviously lives kind of the solitary life so it's like what's the story there yeah no so we do get a little insight into his backstory so they say that he was captured by the Empire Mm. and that he apparently had to buy himself out of indentured servitude like through many many years of hard work and struggle and yeah i want to see that story basically so if there's a quill novel i'll probably be there for that (laughs) another thing i really appreciated was the characterization of cara dune as Mm. someone who's not particularly motherly and that's okay that was really refreshing um obviously not every female character in star wars is depicted as like motherly but it's a big part of femininity depicted in star wars so it's not every character, but it was still, it felt notable to me that it was a character expressly saying, I'm not good with babies, and I guess that's fine. Yeah, no, the exact words from Kara were, I don't do the baby thing, and I yeah. felt that on a very profound level. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm there. I'm the sort of person where when you hand me a baby, I'm like, oh God, oh God. And I just filled with anxiety because they're so fragile and stuff. Well, that's the thing, like, even as a new mum, I appreciated it, because I think it's really important to have female characters like that, where it's not just like, oh, all women love babies, because that's obviously not the case. Yeah, of course, Um, all those natural maternal instincts. (laughs) And that she was still, she still cared about what happened to the child. It wasn't like, that's the thing, it wasn't like, I don't like babies, it was, I'm not about that life and that's fine. Exactly. And she was trying, like, she was just a bit clumsy and like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he did try to kill her. Yes, that was a really interesting moment, actually. Yeah. Obviously driven by his attachment to the Mandalorian, so that's sweet. But he was seeing them arm wrestle and was like, oh, I've got to help him out. Yeah. <laughs> a choker. And I thought that also was an interesting like extension of what they were showing with the IG droid. Because with the IG droid, he's literally wiped and becomes this blank slate and he's turned into whatever Quill wants him to become, essentially. Which in this case is like this nurturing protector and he is that way because he's been trained to be that way and he's nurtured and helped and supported to get there and then with the baby you see that the baby is watching this violence between these characters and it's sort of like a learned behavior to Mm. like cause harm like that and I agree with you that it probably comes from the place of wanting to defend who he considers his father figure essentially but it is also like a reflexive act of violence that the baby needs to be taught not to do because 
yeah like it's just showing that all these things are learnt and they're not innate to anyone and you can be taught not to do these things and not to react in those ways so i quite liked that as a message as a message definitely it doesn't mean that the baby is bad um i'm interested to see as he grows and has his presumably his powers will kind of evolve and strengthen how they'll handle that because obviously the goal now is to reunite him with force sensitive whether it's other yodas or jedi or whoever he ends up with the goal is for him to be with people who kind of understand and can help him use those powers for good presumably yes Um, which the mandalorian would not be able to help him with that's the hard thing he can really care for him but he doesn't know enough about the force Mm. so there is that kind of separation Oh God, yeah. The uh, you're just making me think about the moment that will inevitably come when they have to say goodbye to each other for good, and mm. that, that'll be sad. Yeah, I do wonder if it's gonna kind of tap into the, and I uh, obviously Leia has the Force, but I can't help thinking about it kind of reflecting the separation of Ben Solo from his parents. Mm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting more stories that actually explore and acknowledge that because. Yeah, Stoles hasn't historically been great at showing, yeah, it's actually kind of messed up that we take these very, very young children away from their like caregivers and leave them with this like order. It does go into it a little bit in the Clone Wars. So I'm right. interested to see when you get to watch that, what you make of those things. That makes me more excited to watch the Clone Wars, to be honest. Because, yeah, I like those sort of human stories. And yeah, we find out that Kara was from Alderaan, which is interesting. That's a piece of new information. Yeah, I wonder if she knows Leia. Obviously, she knows of her. She was the princess. Yes. Be interesting, because she was part of the rebellion. Yeah, no, so obviously Kara must have suffered a great deal on account of that and presumably lost people she loved and cared about. Um, So that's pretty heartbreaking. And again, I'm sure we'll get more of that story. Um, Yes, like, in terms of where the episode ends, I got the impression she was going to stay with Grief Karga, sort of as, like, a protector slash bodyguard. Is that the vibe you got? I think so. I honestly can't remember. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I know it's been a long time ago since Uh, you watched it. There's a lot of details I've just kind of forgotten. Yeah, I I guess they were going to be separated. I kind of hoped that she would go with the Mandalorian, because I love their dynamic. Yeah, it's a shame. It looks like it's going to very much be a sort of lone dad and his child vibe again like as the default i'm sure we're gonna see kara and grief and stuff again Mm. that's actually a good point though like grief cargo were you surprised by that turnabout i really thought he was going to be sworn enemies with the mandalorian so i was surprised to see him actually come through as an ally again i think the way he'd been characterized earlier on he was kind of positioned as a good guy and then it was understandable that he turned on the mandalorian after he seemingly broke the code so it was kind of a question of honor and doing what they felt was right according to the laws that they've created amongst themselves as bounty hunters yeah um but i I think he understood where the mandalorian was coming from and after the baby heals him he's like okay (laughs) (laughs) but i love that whole bit where he first like you know persuades them to come and then they all get attacked by dragons and and then he's like oh actually I'm going to kill my own men here. That's not what it's about. <laughs> like, it kept us on our toes. And yeah. I thought all of that was really well directed where they're kind of around the campfire and then they're getting attacked. And I was like, oh, God, yeah. dragons. That was <laughs> is that, awesome. Is that what they were? I thought they were dragons. Yeah, like I didn't know what they're called, but they definitely looked like small dragons to me. And I'm happy with that description. Yeah, yeah that was fun. 
Yeah, no, really great direction on both counts because episode seven was directed by Deborah Chow and episode eight was directed by Taika Waititi and just awesome standards of direction, basically, mm-hmm. especially when it came to all the action stuff. It was very well staged and there's lots of really memorable mem- memorable moments like the attack by the, what we're going to call dragons. And um, yeah, the whole sequence in the lava tunnel, just really cool. Yeah, very well done. So yeah, like I really enjoyed the show um, and I definitely enjoyed it more than I was expecting to. So I feel like it was a very different show from what was being advertised, at least the vibe I got personally from the advertising. And for me, that made me really happy because the advertising wasn't speaking to me much. So I was glad that it had lots of this mushy emotional stuff going on as well, because yeah, that's what I need in my Star Wars. Basically, I need all the feels and the sentimental aspects. Yeah, I've been really pleasantly surprised. I think I've enjoyed every character that they've introduced along the way. There were a lot more than I was kind of anticipating because like when he he first meets Kara and I, I thought things would kind of be more, I don't know, there was a lot of kind of like single self-contained episodes almost where he was like meeting new characters each time. But I enjoyed all of those stories for what they were. Yes. Um, And then kind of being reunited with Kara and Quill at the end kind of brought everything full circle but you know even Moff Gideon introduced at the 11th hour very well executed well performed well written felt very real and threatening in the situation and at the end obviously that was that amazing sequence I know we're talking about how we don't really follow action scenes very well but the whole thing with the tie and then the Mandalorian bringing him down with his uh, his jetpack and everything that was really well done yes Um, and then right at the end, when you discover he has the Darksaber, it's like, okay, so what's the story there then? Because the last time we saw that, Sabine was giving it to Bo-Katan. Um, what's the connection here with the Mandalorians? Like, how is that going to play into the wider story of what happened to the Mandalorians over the years? Because that presumably has to be where that's all going. Because we've had so much scene setting here. You know, what, like you said, with the armorer, with the Mandalorians having to pack up and move elsewhere. Um... I'm hoping to see a lot more of that in season two as well. Yeah, I've seen lots of like murmurs and rumours online about the the voice actress for Bo-Katan potentially being in The Mandalorian. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, so that seems very promising. And yeah, I think they've been talking about the Mandalorian lore and stuff a lot. So I'm sure we're going to get a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Lots to look forward to. Definitely. And also, very important, and we have not talked about it yet, that photo of George Lucas holding the baby. (laughs) Yeah, that's everything. Yeah, it's so, so pure. I love how solemnly he's looking at it. It's not like this, like, oh, how cute. Look, it's like, I'm going to take this very seriously, which is like just George Lucas's default expression, basically. Um, But yeah, it's wonderful. I would love to think that George is really enjoying The Mandalorian because I, I think it is. I think it's Star Wars that he would enjoy. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like he's probably really proud of what they've pulled off with that. And it's also in this nice place where it doesn't really infringe at all on any of his choices. It doesn't like roll anything back or affect it that much. You know, it just builds on it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, The Mandalorian is very pure and very good and people should watch it. I think it's just lovely, relaxing, low-stakes stalls and it's a nice thing to just settle down to with a cup of tea and enjoy. 
Yeah, I'm going to go back and watch all the episodes now that I have a bit more time. Yeah. Yeah, and I think my opinions on the episodes that I wasn't so keen on initially, I think that's already softening as well. Because I think we had conversations as the story was going along. It's like, how are we going to feel about it once it's all told? Because I think those middle episodes, we were a bit like, oh, we want to see what's happening with, you know, that wider story. But of course, it was always going to come back to that. We just didn't know when because they were doing it week by week. So I think now you'll be able to go from one of those episodes then back to a seven or eight. I think that kind of makes the... You just kind of then enjoy it for what it is rather than wondering about when we're going to get back to the other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we've got the reassurance that it definitely will get back to that other stuff. So we don't need to worry. I will say my major disappointment with this show was that Ming-Na Wen really was apparently killed and that was it. Is it Fennec Chand, the character name? So incredibly underutilized. Like, how did that happen? Obviously, it was their intention. That's the story that they wanted to tell that character. But I'm kind of baffled how she was being like heavily promoted as part of the show and was so excited. And, you know, it would be exciting to be in Star Wars, however small the part. And she was very impressive for what we got. But it was so quick and she was killed so unceremoniously. Mm. Um. And then, you know, at the end, when they have the the feet coming up to her, it's like, okay, what's the deal there? But then that's kind of unresolved. Is that going to play into season two somehow? But whoever that character turns out to be, I think either way, we should kind of assume at this point that Fennec is dead and not going to be seen again. But that's really disappointing. And I have to say, it kind of goes hand in hand with my disappointment with um, the treatment of Rose Tico as a character and as a bigger picture that's not great for star wars in terms of its treatment of asian american women yeah so it's yeah. pretty shitty <laughs> yeah gotta note that it's definitely a missed opportunity which is a shame but yeah i'm curious to see which new characters they bring into the second season because i'm sure there will be old favorites turning up again but yeah there's lots of potential for them to introduce new favorites so yeah hopefully they do a good job in terms of diversity in all respects yeah, it will, I think there have been rumours already. I, I'm, they're probably completely false. But people are already kind of speculating on who might turn up in season two. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were some fake leaks about how Iden Versio might be in there and Mon Mothma. But oh, wow. Yeah, I think they've been proven false, but it's kind of fun to think about the potential, right? Because anyone could show up. Yeah, no, exactly. It would be really nice to see some of those characters from the expanded universe show up like one i'd really like to see is brendel hux because he's definitely around and he's such an important character to the formation of the first order that if they did want to open that can of worms he's the sort of character who should be there basically Hmm, that's a good point yeah so yeah very interesting we could also see baby armitage hux as well (laughs) would they still be off in the unknown regions at this time yes confused about the time okay yeah, so they went out to the Unknown Regions, I think, just after the Battle of Jakku, I believe. Okay. And, yeah, I think the Mandalorian takes place a couple of years after that. Mm. So, yeah, there would have to be shenanigans, basically, involving people <laughs> somehow getting to the Unknown Regions. And, yeah, it's uncertain if they'd go there. Right. But I'd like it if they did. It would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So I think that wraps up our discussion of The Mandalorian for this time. I'm sure there'll be more to say about The Mandalorian down the road, but yeah, that's it for now. Um, Cool. So we have a bunch of emails from our listeners that we'd like to get through. 
Cool. So the first email is from Jeremy and he sends lots of lovely comments about enjoying the podcast and how it's helped him to appreciate Star Wars in new ways. Um, So yeah, thank you very much for that, Jeremy. That's really nice. Um, I will just, however, focus on reading the question part of the email just so we can get through things in a sensible fashion. So... I guess what I'm asking is kind of two parts. First, are there any photos of you guys podcasting or from Celebration that you guys have shared on your platforms in the past that I'm just missing? Or have you consciously avoided that kind of public sharing? I'm a huge fan and please don't feel bad about just saying, no, we don't want our images to be shared anywhere. If that's the case, I totally get it. You guys are amazing. Thanks again for everything. Keep it up. And I hope you both have wonderful lives, Jeremy. Thank you for the very nice email, Jeremy. That's really nice. Um... Yeah. Do you want to give our answer, Kirsty? <laughs> um, there are one or two photos of me floating around. I think a couple of people took them at Celebration and posted of them. But generally, and especially for you, we like to keep things private, right? Yeah, um, definitely. Star Wars fandom can be kind of a scary, unwelcoming place. Um, and just in general, we just kind of tend to be more on the private side of things. So yeah. even though we have social media... Like, I have a private Twitter profile. Rachel has one, but she doesn't use it that much. Yeah, and we're just not about posting lots of photos of ourselves. Hopefully people can understand that. Yeah, no, same. Like, for me, it's also just about keeping a very clear line between my fandom activities and my real life. Um, Because, yeah, I consider them very separate. Obviously, doing this is my real life. This isn't some, like, fake version of me. I'm being sincere and genuine (laughs) with what I'm saying. (laughs) Who is the real Rachel? (laughs) (laughs) oh my god but yeah you you know what I mean it's sort of like I consider this a very separate thing and I like it that way you know because it means this is just sort of like my safe space where I can go and just like be a big nerd and geek out about Star Wars without it bleeding into like my professional life or my personal life or anything like that and yeah that's where I like it so yeah thanks for the interest but um yeah I hope that will make sense and seems reasonable yeah i guess it must be kind of weird for some people not to be able to put a face to the voices yes we had a few weird encounters at celebration actually right where people would like be sat next to us in panels and then someone like overheard you talking was like i'm sat next to rachel from scavengers oh god (laughs) (laughs) that was so mortifying i felt like nowhere is safe (laughs) (laughs) but that's the thing people would only recognize us by our voices yeah so. exactly and that's the only environment in which that would happen you yeah know, it's a bloody souls convention like, <laughs> it doesn't happen in my normal life <laughs> we're not famous no exactly only in the context of star celebration and yeah and it's really nice that people recognize us and take an interest but um yeah also a bit strange and it only hits you in those moments so it's a bit odd mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> okay cool so the next email is from Holly. Um, would you like to read that one out, Kirsty? Sure. Great show. Been listening for years and your podcast has been consistently my favourite Star Wars podcast. Oh, thank you, Holly. A uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, I guess you could say. I imagine you have some deep dives planned out already, but I would love to hear about your takes on what all the dyad business was about. Some of the larger dyad storylines that got cut sounded really interesting, but I'm still not sure what the dyad meant for Tross. It was like they had a cool concept but couldn't figure out what to do with it, except power up Palpatine for his costume change into red robes. Would be interested to hear what you guys think was going on. Yeah, it is a bit strange how they present it in The Rise of Skywalker, isn't it? Mm, 
Yeah, like it does feel a bit peripheral to everything else that goes on. Like it's mentioned, but it's basically an aspect of Kylo's pickup line to Ray. <laughs> We're a dyad, Ray. <laughs> you see, we should be together, Ray. You see, it makes sense. Yeah, oh. I'm guessing what Holly's alluding to is the the leak that came out about the Oracle character and we're now getting concept art from the art book. Yes. Um, Because I think it's already been published in um, South Korea. But yeah, so he went to see the Oracle. Was that on Mustafar? Or during that sequence, right, at the beginning? Yeah, it definitely looks like Mustafar and I believe you can see Vader's castle in the background, in which case, yeah. Right. Mustafar. Yeah. So the idea is that the, the Oracle would tell him well, call him out on his feelings for Ray, but also in terms of what they are meant to be for each other, the dyad. Um, because, of course, later on, I think I said this in our discussion episode, he's able to tell Ray we're a dyad, but Palpatine doesn't know. So he didn't get that information from Palpatine. Yeah. So it's you can picture... Ben doing research himself looking through books like why am I so obsessed with the scavenger girl <laughs> oh it's a dyad okay there's a rational explanation <laughs> oh thank god yeah like, I quite like it actually I'm a sucker for like anything like um like oh we're destined or mm. prophesized and that sort of thing um and I like the idea of that feeding into like Kylo's initial like rather egotistical concept of himself you know and this idea of oh I'm so special and important and it's like oh Ray and me are so special and important because we're a dyad isn't that awesome Woo! um so yeah I love that on several levels um it definitely isn't really explored at all in the version of Rise of Skywalker that reached us but I love the potential that it has as a concept and in terms of what can be done with it in the future for expanded universe stuff because yeah i have lots of theories and ideas for how you could make that dietness fit into the rain kylo stuff that we have already and how you could also tell new stories that where that is a big factor yeah i'm kind of conflicted on it because on the one hand and this is interesting actually because anthony bresnikan specifically asked jj if kind of the red string of fate was something that he'd woven into the story. And he said no, but from my understanding of the dyad, that's kind of what it sounds like. Mm. That it's something that comes along every few generations and it's two people who are linked together. That to me sounds like the red string of fate or at least like what uh, an incarnation of that could be in, in a story like this. But maybe I, I would be surprised speaking. if JJ was thinking about it in a very literal sense. It's like, <laughs> okay. no, they're not tied together by a red string. Oh, what do you I, mean? Actually, to be fair, I suppose Anthony was asking him in the context of the actual red thread that we see around the ribbon that Ray's carrying during right. her training. So maybe that's what they were talking about. But really, if you were thinking about Ray and Kylo's dynamic, the dyad is kind of what that is. Yes. So, um, strange answer from JJ there. But. I'm conflicted about it because I don't love over explanations for the force. Mm. So in my mind, it's kind of like the midichlorian thing. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't hate them. Um, and I totally get why they're valuable for other fans in terms of understanding what the force is and how things work. But um, it seems to me how we got it in the rise of Skywalker seemed like an unnecessary explanation for the mysticism of the force bond that we got in the last Jedi. 
Sure. So it was like you didn't really need to explain what that was or give it a name. It was just that these two characters were connected. Yeah. And yeah, they just gave it a name and then they didn't go anywhere with it because the closest you get is, like she says at the end, when Palpatine's like, oh, a dyad, I'll use this to restore my life force. But then is that what the dyad exists for? Because then that's that's like a bad thing. Mm. Yeah. It's the sort of thing where I hope they don't get to anal basically about like trying to define what it is and like what it means and stuff going forward i'd like it to be kept more as like this ambiguous thing where there's like prophecies about these diets in the force and there's other examples of them historically but beyond the very broad strokes of two people with an intense connection people don't really understand what it is much beyond that mm. like if they keep it general in that way then i'm cool with it but if they're like oh yes you have gene blah 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 and gene blah 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 and this creates a unique mutation that means that you are bound together in the force like if they go sort of that like pseudoscience through i'm like no i'm not here for that well it makes me wonder if they would retcon things like bastila and revan being a dyad Mm. There are clear parallels, obviously, between those characters and Rey and Kylo. However, however intentional or not that was, you know, the, the archetypes and the story of redemption and love are pretty similar. Um, I'm just wondering, like, what what connotations will they give the dyad if they start talking about other characters who had it? Will it be a romantic thing or like a soulmate thing, or will it be similar to like Yoda and Dooku having a force bond? <laughs> Who knows? Well, we, that's the most intense sexual relationship in the whole of Star Wars, Kirsty. But that's the thing. That. Canonically, they had a force bond. So obviously yes. in the sequel trilogy, the force bond is used to tell the story of these two characters coming together and falling in love. But that's not the way every force bond seems to work. But will that change with this new idea of the dyad? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's all to be confirmed. But yeah, I would definitely like to talk about this in more depth further down the road so i'm sure we'll have an episode that would go into this in significantly more detail mm. is there anything about the dyad in the visual dictionary oh, i don't think so i would need to check again though but since okay. it's been a little while since i looked at it all right i will definitely look at it in the future though um right so then the next email is from wilson belshaw I'd just like to thank you both for the past two years of Star Wars podcasting. Although I'm not a Raylo myself, the community does have the best metatextual analysis of the series, and your discussions are always a great listen. One point slash question I have is regarding John Beyega's recent comments about no longer being a bit of a bumbler in The Rise of Skywalker. You both took that to be a dig at The Last Jedi, but it seemed to me like he was probably talking about The Force Awakens too, because he bumbles more in that movie, if anything. He was certainly right about having a different personality in the new movie. I'm just not sure what that personality was. <laughs> One final question. Do you think there's any chance that Rise of Skywalker was written by the AI which wrote the Batman script? <laughs> um, oh, and on an optimistic note, we'll probably never have another Star Wars movie that's disappointing again. <laughs> My rationale for thinking that is that they likely won't work with filmmakers of JJ's stature going forward and they never would have accepted that script from somebody else. If Lord and Miller had turned that in, they would have called the police. <laughs> Ouch, Wilson. Wow. Burn. I feel like we've been very diplomatic and paired back. Wow. Gosh, so there's obviously various different parts to this. Um, so first all about the John Boyega comments. Um, I, good question. I hadn't yeah. really thought about that, to be honest. I get what Wilson's saying, and that might be what John thinks. 
I really love Finn in The Force Awakens, and I really love him in The Last Jedi too, to be honest. So, um, it was it was a little hard to hear that John didn't appreciate Finn's arc there because I think it's so strong, and I was kind of disappointed with what they did or really didn't do with him in The Rise of Skywalker. Mm. There was so much potential, and I just for whatever reason. And again, we'll come back to this when we are able to discuss the Trevorrow draft in more depth, but it was clear that there were ideas there that could have been developed. And for some reason, in the final version of this movie that we got, they just weren't. Yeah. And that character has really not been done justice. And I honestly wonder, after having seen the film, the final cut, because clearly a lot of other stuff was filmed and then taken out, what does John feel about it? Because if Mm -hmm. I was him, I wouldn't be happy with what happened to my character. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to make assumptions. I don't know the guy, but I think he probably had hopes that they would do more with the character as we all did. And then it just hasn't really come to fruition. And we've said a lot, like the real strength of the sequel trilogy has been the characters, but a lot of that is about the potential of the characters and not all of them have really been developed to their potential. Yeah. No, it's a pity. I feel like... Finn was probably one of the characters who was least served by the rise of Skywalker because yeah there's obviously serious issues with how Rey and Kylo's stories turn out but I feel like there's a lot much more substantial stuff going on with both those characters than there is with Finn so I feel like Finn doesn't even really get a clearly defined arc in the rise of Skywalker to be honest I struggle to pick out what his story is you know and how he grows and develops um it's like he's comes the general at the end but it's in such a fleeting moment that it barely registers and it doesn't have any sort of impact or feel like the culmination of anything and yeah there's all these like missed opportunities like the conversation with Jana I think I said in our big in-depth review episode that I really would have loved it if she had been inspired by Finn's defection to defect herself you know that a whole squad of stormtroopers had heard these whispers about FN two one eight seven, and then they'd been inspired to lay down their arms. You know that could have led to some sort of really emotional resolution with Finn and him potentially helping other stormtroopers and stuff. So we've always wanted the stormtrooper rebellion storyline with Finn, but that obviously didn't happen. So yeah, just lots of wasted potential with that character, unfortunately. Yeah, it just kind of amazes me that you would introduce this character with that such a specific unique backstory so so much potential there and then not really do anything with it and just you know after the force awakens and i I do love what ryan did with him and i think that totally made sense for the character in that stage but then after that like once he's decided i'm on the side of the resistance he's just another character who could have been from anywhere and i know that like you say they do go into the whole it's a feeling that's why I left thing but that has its own issues in my opinion because then that takes away Finn's agency in that crucial moment at the beginning of The Force Awakens he didn't make that choice uh, from a moral standpoint apparently it was just oh the force made me do it yeah um so I can see on paper why they might be excited to give that character force powers but in execution it has kind of uneasy implications for how you then see the rest of the stormtroopers it just kind of means that the rest of them didn't have a chance. And really the closest we get to them exploring all of that potential is those deleted scenes from The Last Jedi when he confronts Phasma and then is talking to the other troopers about how she lies to them and how they're all indoctrinated and how they have the chance to really make a 
a change in their own lives and and then then it's gone so i don't know that's that is one of the big disappointments for me with the sequel trilogy yeah no it's a real shame and yeah like obviously like you i don't know john Hager, but i can only imagine he's disappointed of how he, it turned out we'll have an episode dedicated to finn at some point yes yeah. there is a lot to go through and i i really do love that character in the force awakens and the last jedi yes um, and he's still charming in the rise of skywalker it's just there's so much you, you're thinking oh they really could have gone a bit further with that and and i've said before i'm really disappointed but they kind of axed the whole finn and rose thing i thought that relationship was really wonderful for both of those characters so yeah there's there's a lot to go into there it's like yeah. opening a can of worms yeah no exactly we'll have more to say basically so watch the space and then the other thing about never getting another Star Wars movie this disappointing never say never yeah (laughs) (laughs) I love the optimism and it's tricky like in some ways I agree but probably for different reasons and my different reasons would be that this was meant to be like the culmination of the three trilogies and the culmination of the sequel trilogy and because I'm not sure if we're ever going to get like another trilogy you know like episodes 10 11 12 in the future i'm not sure there will ever be another star wars movie that has quite the same weight of expectation on it that episode 9 did um obviously the force awakens had more expectation but i think the force awakens met and often far surpassed those expectations so that one was doing fine um it's just episode 9 that was obviously a disappointment because it was not great (laughs) It probably would not happen again for that reason because people would just have much more measured expectations going into future Star Wars movies. I do also like to think that they'd take much more care with the sorts of stories they're telling and have much far more quality control measures going forward. But at the same time, I want to be careful with that because I feel like you can't be too paranoid about making everything satisfying and stuff so i feel like that's the trap the rise of skywalker fell into in the first place and there's the danger of them going too far into something like the marvel model where you just have a succession of perfectly serviceable movies that are ultimately kind of formulaic and aren't really offering anything that new or invigorating i don't know i'm kind of mixed on it how about you kirsty yeah i think part of the problem was that they promised (laughs) they themselves decided to market this as not just the end of this trilogy but the end of all nine movies and really they didn't have to do that they could have just told the end of this story um and thematically if it was coherent and kind of fed into those wider ideas of what star wars is and what it represents and things like redemption and compassion and forgiveness um that would have felt like the end of that saga to me i mean Mm. i guess it depends how they do it but really i I remember when we were talking about it beforehand, it really did seem like they'd bitten off more than they could chew. They were talking about all of these character arcs they had to wrap up um, and the fact that it was like the culmination of this nine-part saga and they didn't have to do that to themselves. Yeah. I really think it would have worked if they'd just tried to stick to telling the story that they'd set up with The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi because it a lot... uh, Coming back to kind of how Finn was treated, the newer characters kind of got watered down and pushed aside in this need to wrap things up for the whole saga um, yeah which did which did characters like ray and finn a disservice um yeah so it's tricky but i'm with you on having such high expectations because i think they're aware of that and almost like why they 
kind of want to break away from the Skywalker saga, or at least what they've said. These characters have such weight to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, I think I w- said this in our Tross discussion episode. What would this trilogy have been like if those legacy characters and hadn't been there, if the actors hadn't agreed to come back? Because they could have made the villain or the hero, the the son or the daughter or whatever of of those characters, but they wouldn't necessarily had to be featured, or at least the degree that they were. Um, yeah. How how would that have been different, and would it have meant that these characters had more arcs, more fulfilling arcs? And if this trilogy just felt more coherent in and of itself, and would therefore have better staying power, mm. uh, I guess we'll never really know because it is what it is. But um, I expect to have more disappointing Star Wars movies in the future because that's just how it's going to go. If they keep making them, the odds are you'll be disappointed by one. But yeah. I, I see your point that there were there were high expectations for this one, so maybe it was always doomed to not not be able to fully deliver. Um, on the bright side, I'm already thinking more kindly toward Rogue One and Solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd actually quite like to rewatch them. It's been a few years. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, and I don't dislike either of those movies. I like Solo a lot, actually. But it just, at the time, it felt like quite a small story. It obviously didn't do that great at the box office. But really, it's a perfectly fine film with great performances. So, if anything, it'll make me appreciate those a bit more. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. Like, I'd like to revisit them. And I know we're going to be talking about one particular aspect of Solo quite soon. So, oh. mm-hmm. yeah, let's keep that under wraps for now. It can be a nice <laughs> surprise. Okay, cool. So then let's move on to the final email, um, which I believe was sent in response to our reaction episode to The Rise of Skywalker. Um, so, yeah, would you like to read this one out from Jenny, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Your latest episode was really difficult to listen to, as I'm sure it was to record, and I'm very sorry for everyone that this was such a disappointing movie on like a hundred different levels. <laughs> like Rachel, I did manage to enjoy a lot of it, even as I left the theatre scratching my head over all of the things. As you say, it was entirely unthinkable that J.J. Abrams could make a bad movie here given the success of The Force Awakens, and it just begs the question, what the hell could have happened? I find that I'm not really interested in an answer because ultimately I did get what I wanted. Redemption for Ben Solo and Raylo. How we got there obviously should and could have been executed better. That this movie should be the conclusion to the previous eight. That was a bad goal and even when it was first announced I did feel a twinge of scepticism. That's kind of what we were just saying. Um, Taking that approach basically meant that the story that was set up in TFA and TLJ did not get its proper conclusion whereas the other trilogies already had. The sacrifice is empty. It reinforces the fact that, for whatever reason, JJ and co. refused to take the risks needed to get to the emotional payoff this should have been, and that they were clearly aiming for. I have hope that the novelisation will help ease the stink to some degree. I can't remember. Have either of you read anything by Ray Carson? I'm just starting her first book, The Girl of Fire and Thorns, to see what she's like as a writer. I'm only a couple of pages in, but I get a good feeling. Anyway, I just wanted to reach out and give you some encouragement and say that one of the best things to come out of the sequel trilogy for me is stumbling onto your podcast. I really look forward to listening to your insights. They have enriched the whole of Star Wars content, super enjoying your Mando reviews, by the way, for me for the last three years, and it's just been really fun to engage with Star Wars in this way. Thank you for all your hard work and dedication. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's such a lovely email. Thank you very much. We have read something by Ray Carson. She wrote the tie-in novel for Solo. Is it called Most Wanted? Yep, that's right. Yeah, it's the Kira and Han prequel. We really enjoyed that. 
yeah, I really liked it. I think um, from what I recollect, I really especially enjoyed how she wrote like Kira's in a monologue in her experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously you don't get much of that in the solo movie. So yeah, it was really satisfying. And I think she has a really good handle on characterization and stuff, which is obviously very important to us. So yeah, like I'm optimistic about the novel. I feel like she has a very difficult job because obviously there's so much in that movie I think our first reaction was it's a lot <laughs> you know so being able to translate that into a novelization, I do not envy her the task at all and I really hope that people are very understanding and empathetic when they're reviewing the novel like you know this is not going to fix everything magically um, but yeah I also really hope that it sort of smooths over some things and allows certain beats more time to breathe because I think that could make a big difference I was going to say, I think it has the potential to kind of address some of the pacing issues. Um, and I think she said on Twitter, there's, there's obviously you'd kind of assume that it will include stuff that was cut from the movie. So I think she said if it included everything that she's including in the novel for the movie, it would have been over three hours long. Wow. Um, so interesting to think about what might be in there. Um, and whether that lines up with any deleted scenes we get or stuff from the art book and that so we can kind of piece together what the original intent was um yeah i'm not sure what the hell happened (laughs) to be honest (laughs) i'm really i'm trying to be more positive because obviously our reaction show which is what she's responding to here was pretty negative i was i was pretty upset Mm. Um, and then even in our discussion episode where we kind of broke things down scene by scene we were honest and candid about what disappointed us and it, it, what worked too but mostly this movie does not work for me mm. um, so like Jenny I was invested in redemption and Raylo but even having those things happen didn't really compensate for the fact that we got a bad movie for me yeah I've seen a lot of people around the internet kind of surprised at the fact that a lot of the Raylo fandom isn't happy with this movie, but it wasn't, it was never just about seeing these characters kiss for a lot of us, which we we tried to make clear over the years, but I guess people didn't really want to listen or just, I don't know, maybe just wasn't, they weren't invested enough to understand the minutiae of what we value in the story, which is fair enough. You know, we can't expect everyone to pay that much attention to us, but um yeah, we were hoping for something that made sense for the overall story of the sequel trilogy. We were really invested in this. Uh, we especially loved The Last Jedi, or at least I did. And I don't think that this movie really carried on things with respect to what had been set up. I feel like it undermined things quite intentionally sometimes. Um, yeah, and as Jenny says, and we were kind of talking before we read her email, they, they kind of did just bite off more than they could chew, that they would promising that this story would wrap up the rest of the story rather than just the previous two movies and it suffered as a result of that yeah i think they ultimately gave priority to the like legacy of star wars and the older characters i and obviously not in terms of screen time because leia for obvious reasons and luke have very limited screen time in this movie but ultimately the final moments in the movie the moments that like give you that enduring impression of what the movie's about they're more about luke and leia and the skywalkers in terms of that older generation of skywalkers rather than ben solo and yeah i think that's a big part of the sting to be honest that um lack of faith in the younger generation and the newer characters so yeah that was a shame yeah 
Like, I think everyone knows how we feel at this point. Or at least people, if they're listening to this podcast, should. But yeah, like, I feel much more at peace with it. Like, and obviously I'm always going to wish we had a better movie. You know, like, I'm never not going to wish that. But I do accept it for what it is. You know, warts and all. And there's lots of warts. (laughs) Yeah, I'm at the stage where I'm actually quite looking forward to... Okay, so we have this. What can we do with it? You know, like, so, as we were saying, talking about stuff like the dyad and stuff because that's a potentially really interesting idea with a lot to unpick about it um as long as you don't yeah like make it too scientific or anything i'm excited and optimistic about the future and i still feel very passionate about stars and yeah thank you so much for the lovely email and the message of support because it means a lot yeah we we got a lot of nice feedback from people who were quite understanding of our our stay after seeing the movie obviously i was kind of more emotional than you were Oh, I think it's been hard for a lot of people because we were all really invested and it wasn't just about the story going in a specific direction because as she says on paper we got things that we wanted yeah but it's kind of been frustrating to see the rest of the fandom be like well isn't this what you wanted you guys should be happy why are you so entitled you should you were expecting more but really before all those specific things I wasn't expecting to have things checked off my checklist it was more about JJ and co like she says, making a competent, well-paced, well-structured, well-written movie. And I don't think that's what happened. Mm. And really, that should have been first and foremost. Yeah. Like, the reason we expected Redemption and Raylo was because we believed that those things had been set up by the rest of the story. But apparently, JJ decided he could have thrown out the rest of the story if he wanted. And he did throw out a lot of other things. So those could have just as easily been on the chopping block, I guess. If we're thinking about the what's been revealed with the supposed Trevorrow draft that came out, those things might not have happened. Yeah. Um, it's up for debate whether those are the reasons that Kathleen Kennedy said they couldn't work together anymore. Maybe those were the things that she was like, no, these things have to happen. That mm. was the plan from the beginning, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. Again, just the behind the scenes stuff of this movie is quite possibly more interesting <laughs> than the actual plot of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I'm looking forward to finding out more. Let's put it that way, because we will. People will talk. Lips will loosen and all that. So uh-huh. yeah, we've got lots more stories to be revealed, essentially. Um, okay, but yeah, I think that's it email-wise, isn't it, Kirsty? It is for now, yeah. So if you have any questions, send them to scavengershoard at gmail.com or send us a DM on Twitter. Yeah, no, we really like having the emails and yeah, I think reading them out for the Rose Tico episode really made me appreciate how much value they can add. So yeah, do send them in. We love to hear from people. So yeah, yeah. I think you'd like to hear us talk about, let us know. And we will re- revisit The Mandalorian in time. This is kind of just like a quick reaction impression of the season, but we haven't had time to really go back and analyse things. We will do that at some point. We're, we've got yeah. a lot of time to fill, so... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We'll actually do a careful episode where we prepare pro- properly and we like dig a bit deeper into what it's all trying to say and stuff. Because there is some really interesting thematic stuff going on with The Mandalorian. It's a simple show, but often the best way to convey your themes is to be simple. So then they just should come through really clearly and with great clarity. So yeah, it'll be fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I'm Rachel and you can find me on Stars Nonsense on Tumblr. I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr, and you can find both of us at Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Until next time, bye! Bye!